Welcome. Glad that you're here. Uh, my name is John. If you're visiting with us, uh, I serve as one of our pastors, and uh, it's just a real honor to have you uh, here with us to worship Jesus this morning. Uh, before we get into uh, our message for today, I just want to give a public thank you. Uh, do you guys happen to have that picture of the screen back there? Um, if you dropped your kids off this morning and you happened to look up to the ceiling, you'd notice something was a little bit different. Um, there's a TV mounted on the ceiling right in front of our child uh, check-in center. Um, slash security, safety, whatever you want to call it. Um, anyway, this week, a team of guys put in a lot of work, and really it's the culmination of a lot of work that they've done already, uh, so to install cameras throughout the entire building. So there's nowhere that you can go next door where um, eyes are not, are not on you, which is good. That's a, that's a good thing. We care deeply about the flourishing and the well-being of our children, and uh, we take that very seriously, and we also care about the people who are um, volunteering to care and to serve um, our children. We care about them as well. Um, so this data is always displayed, or these images are always displayed right in front of the check-in station for whomever's manning that. And then it all goes to a hard drive until three terabytes is filled, and then it starts writing over itself. So I just want to say thank you to uh, Grant Ellis, Matt Mulheron, and Scott. Uh, there you are. You are here, Scott. Thank you. Men, thank you. They invested a lot of time and Scott, I heard crazy stories about you. There's a cargo elevator next door. It's a weird building with lots of oddities about it. And I heard you actually got not in, like I've ridden in the elevator, maybe with or without my kids, but you actually got up on top of the elevator and was riding up and down the shaft, making this thing happen. You're one of my heroes, Scott. Um, but guys, I just want to say thank you. And I, I just want this to be another demonstration that we do care deeply about our children, about their well-being and their safety and their flourishing. So thanks, guys, for making that happen. Let's pray, and we'll get right down to work. Jesus, we thank you for your grace. Uh, thank you for being willing to submit to your Father and willingly coming and taking the form of a servant, living a perfect life, dying in our place, taking the punishment for our rebellion, and then giving us, crediting us with your righteousness so that we could be adopted into the family. Father, we thank you for pursuing us through your Son. Thank you, Jesus, for giving us your spirit to bring us to life and to sustain our lives. Help us in what we need to do this morning. Help us to look to you. Help us to find our confidence and our hope and our encouragement in you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So today, we begin a two-week overview of the Old Testament book of Daniel. At the end of last year, when I polled our church family asking you what Bible books or topics you wanted to hear preached in the coming year, Daniel was one request. I'm not sure who requested it, but I do want to say thank you uh, for requesting Daniel. My soul has been deeply encouraged um, spending time in Daniel, getting ready for our time together this morning and next week. And I, I hope you are just as encouraged as well. And I hope that each successive series that we preach reminds you that we, uh, the elders, care deeply about you. We value your input and we are gladly working to honor your request. So thank you to whomever um, asked for Daniel. Um, really appreciate it. Daniel just may be one of the um, best Old Testament books with which we are least familiar. 
That's got to change. It's got to change because Daniel, Daniel must be one of the Old Testament books with which we are most familiar because we need Daniel's message. I hope you see that this morning. We need the message that Daniel has. And quite honestly, we have so much in common with some of the main characters. I think, I think you'll be a little bit surprised at how much in common we have with, uh, with Daniel's context. Sadly, Daniel is an often misunderstood book, or we're just intimidated by all the visions, imagery, apocalyptic stuff, and the prophecy that's there, so we just stay away. But I want to encourage you, don't be intimidated, and we're not staying away, we're diving in. But before we do, here are four all-too-common, unhelpful ways to approach Daniel. They're common, and they're just not helpful. The first is to make a prophecy chart. That's what I grew up in. I grew up in the world of prophecy charts. Uh, the Left Behind movie series from the 70s, maybe the 60s, I don't know. You guys tracking? You know what I'm talking about? All right. Um, chart building and timelines are not Daniel's primary purpose. They're just not. In fact, the goal of biblical prophecy is not to help us circle dates on the calendar. That's just not the goal. Jesus said clearly, nobody knows when, when I'm returning. So to, and nobody's going to know until I come back. Um, Prophecy is less concerned with when and more concerned with how. In other words, how we are to live in light of what God is going to do in the future with hope, with confidence, with purpose, and with a spirit of repentance, constantly turning away from our sin and turning to Jesus. This is just one example of a prophecy chart from Daniel. Not teaching through this this morning. Be encouraged. I'm not going to pick on it either. You can just Google prophecy charts and there's some pretty crazy stuff out there, okay? So not, not the primary purpose of Daniel. Um, secondly, uh, an unhelpful but common approach to Daniel is to craft a meal plan. Uh, not too many years ago, there was a popular, a book was popularized. This is called The Daniel Plan. Um, now, I'm not, I'm not mocking it. Um, in fact, I heard statistically uh, one of the churches that was in this, like they calculated all the people that were involved and all the weight that they lost. I'll tell you why you lose weight. The Daniel plan in Daniel chapter one is vegetables and water. You're gonna lose weight. Um, I'm not a dietitian and I'm not a nutritionist and we're not gonna break down the, the diet. But all I'm saying is that's, that, that, is, that is not why uh, Daniel wrote his book. Uh, number three, an unhelpful way is to view this 2,600-year-old book as if it was tended for, intended for somebody else. It's not. In God's grace, this book is for you. Daniel's message is for you. This is yours. Okay, This is ours. This is our book. And finally, um, let's not approach this book as if Daniel is the hero. Sure, if you're familiar with the book, you know he does some heroic stuff. In fact, one of the first Sunday school songs that I learned as a little, little child was, uh, nobody knows it, because I'm not singing it for you. Dare to be a Daniel. You've never sung that song? Maybe we'll sing it next week, <laughs> just because. Um, I was going to sing a few of the lines, but I'm not going to play along this morning. You guys are playing hard to get. Um, Daniel is not the hero of the book. His book points us to the one who is. That would be Daniel's purpose in writing his message. So we'll spend two weeks here, which is perfect because Daniel breaks down just perfectly into two sections. Chapters one to six contain six stories from Daniel's life, okay? We're gonna, we're gonna fly over those this morning. Chapters seven through 12 are filled with Daniel's vision. So we're really gonna have to get after it next week. All the visions will be next week. The six, six stories will be this morning. For historical context, the events recorded in Daniel occur between 605 and 530 BC. In fact, the book opens with a distinct historical anchor. Um, 
Chapter 1, verses 1 to 2 read, In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. Now, I'm sure you know your world history, especially if you're a CCer. I know you have a song for this era of history. You probably sing it in the car all the time. So you know that the Babylonian Empire was the dominant global superpower at the time, right? They, they owned the world. And Nebuchadnezzar really had restored the fortune of the Babylonian Empire. He, he repopularized, revitalized the empire. He had an aggressive foreign policy. Uh, he was absolutely mopping the floor with his opponents. He was conquering neighboring kingdoms, turning them into vassal states, and basically absorbing all of their best qualities, people and stuff, into the Babylonian Empire. Now, Jehoiakim, who we just read about in verse 1, he was an evil king, um, sadly, like many kings before him. So God actually sent Nebuchadnezzar and his army into Israel as judgment for their unrepentant and unrelenting rebellion from his kind kingly rule. We read about that in 2 Kings 24. Actually, you can read about a lot of the historical context there. We're not going to. I just want to show you this in verse 3. It says, surely this judgment came upon Judah Look, Look! you need to see this, at the command of the Lord to remove them out of his sight for the sins of Manasseh according to all that he had done and also for the innocent blood that he had shed. For he filled Jerusalem with innocent blood and the Lord would not pardon. So Nebuchadnezzar conquers Jerusalem. He takes treasure and captives back to Babylon. Now some of you have been there. You may not know it, but some of you have actually been where Babylon was. Babylon is 60 miles southwest of Baghdad along the Euphrates River. Some of you have walked in the very places that we'll be talking about today. That's kind of crazy. It's kind of crazy. Uh, Daniel will live as a captive in Babylon for the next seven, 70 years, and he'll actually serve under four different kings during that time. He'll die there. Um, so his whole life, from late teens to his 70s, 80s, um, are spent in captivity in Babylon. Now, the six stories that we encounter in the first half of his book, I want you to know they span a lifetime. So don't think that we're going to like cruise through six stories and they all happen just back to back to back in one week, like right after Daniel got there. In fact, the first one happened probably while he was a teenager, 17, 18, 19. And in chapter six, the one story that probably everybody is familiar with out of Daniel, the lions, right? He was probably a 70 to 75 year old man um, when that story took place. So these span a lifetime. Here's the theme for the book. Here's the theme for Daniel. Sovereign king... Confidence for changing seasons and uncertain futures. Sovereign king, confidence for changing seasons and uncertain futures. What we're going to see in these six stories, uh, we're going to focus in on three sets of lead characters. And I'm going to go in order of importance. And this actually might surprise you a little bit, especially with the second grouping. The first one won't surprise you. Uh, the first lead character is the sovereign king. Uh, not Nebuchadnezzar, but God himself. Um, the sovereign king is the only character present in every scene throughout the book of Daniel. Uh, though it bears Daniel's name, the book of Daniel is not primarily about Daniel. And isn't this true of all scripture, though? The Bible is primarily about God, not primarily about us. So the sovereign king that we meet in Daniel is the main character, the, the hero of the story. And this is a good reminder that Christianity is not about inviting God into my story. 
Christianity is about finding my place in God's story. Jesus is not my co-pilot. He's my sovereign king, right? He's my king. Um, So that's the first lead character, the sovereign king. Secondly, here's the second grouping, those for whom this sovereign king is a source of conflict. Uh, These characters include three kings, Nebuchadnezzar, Belshazzar, and Darius. These guys would say, say something like this, I am my own God. No one is sovereign over me. Uh, Look around at my kingdom. Look what I've done. Like, I built this. And apart from Jesus, we are these kings. We have these same kind of hard attitudes, and we say these same kinds of things apart from Jesus. So that's the second grouping, those for whom the sovereign king is a source of conflict. The final grouping of lead characters are those for whom this sovereign king is a source of not conflict, but confidence. These characters include Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Their names change in the story, so you may not be as familiar with those names. But they would say things like this in regards to the sovereign king. They would say, man, that's my God. That is my king. I love that he is sovereign over me. His sovereignty is no threat to my existence, no threat to my joy. Rather, he is my confidence. I trust him. I believe that my king is good. I trust that he is good. And I trust that he uses his sovereignty for my ultimate good. Now, all three sets of characters, listen, they're in the book, but what we also need to understand is this room is filled with all three sets of characters this morning. Our sovereign king is here, and for some of you, um, he is a great and increasing sense or source of confidence. You, You find your joy in him. You love it. You love him. For others, the idea of a God who is a sovereign king is a profound source of conflict and internal turmoil for your soul. All three groups of characters are always present in every setting, no matter where we go. Now, as is true with every story ever ever written, Daniel is full of tension that needs to be resolved. There are two layers of tension in Daniel that we'll see this morning. For those whom this sovereign king is a source of confidence, their tension is along these lines. Will we continue to trust him now that we're in such difficult and dire circumstances and he seems so distant? Will our sovereign king prove himself faithful and good? That's their tension as we work through the narrative. Now, for those whom this sovereign king is a source of conflict, here's their tension. What is the outcome for that posture? If your posture is one of conflict or hostility towards this sovereign king, what is the ultimate outcome of your posture? And that'll be the tension that we see unfold with them. And Daniel, we're gonna, we're gonna be presented with two different outcomes for those who are at odds with the sovereign king. So what we're gonna do is go chapter by chapter. We're gonna title the chapters to help us remember them. Then we'll briefly overview each story. We'll see the tension and we'll make application and we'll get it done, okay? All right, chapter one, we're gonna call chapter one confidence or compromise, okay? Confidence or compromise. Let me begin by reading Daniel 1, uh, 1 to 7. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God, and he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. 
Then the king commanded Asphanaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge and understanding, uh, learning and competent to stand in the king's palace. Basically, he raided the Air Force dorms, not the Marine Corps barracks. That's what happened right there. And teach them the literature and the language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belshazzar. Hananiah he called, here's the names you might be familiar with, Shadrach. Mishael he called Meshach. And Azariah he called Abednego. So Daniel and his friends find themselves hundreds of miles from home. They've got a new home, new literature, new language, probably full of acronyms, just like yours, new names, new haircuts, new uniforms, a new boss who was not a follower of God, nor was he sympathetic to those who were. Uh, their new boss had, an, had radically different values, different ethics, and different goals. And Daniel and his friends are working for and within a government system that neither honored God nor concerned itself with justice or mercy. I'm telling you, you have a lot more in common with Daniel and his three friends than maybe you realized before you came in here this morning. So very, on, very early on in this career, Daniel is faced with a life-shaping choice. In a culture and a workplace where he was solidly in the minority because of his faith in God and would inevitably come face to face with workplace expectations to disobey God in order to obey his bosses, what would he do? What would you do? In verse 8 we read, but Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Basically, Daniel and his friends were being placed on a mandatory meal plan that was filled with foods forbidden them by God's laws. That's what's going on. Uh, the food was unclean. They just weren't allowed to eat it. Or in fact, it had been offered to idols. So it was actually part of a worship experience where in eating the food, they would be paying homage to um, lesser gods, lowercase g gods, not the one true God. They, they, they couldn't go here. This isn't about food itself per se. And that's why we say like, look, the book of Daniel is just not written to be a meal, meal plan. That's not what it's about. This is about Daniel's allegiance to his true king. Look, we're not detached from this. You face this kind of decision all the time, Monday to Friday um, in your work environment. Your boss or your peers ask or expect you to do something that directly contradicts God's will for you as his son or as his daughter, and you know it. They may not know it, but you are acutely aware of what's going on. So again, the question is, what do you, what do, you do? What do you do in that moment? Well, Daniel said no. He said, I'm not going to defile myself with this. He said, Babylon can have my body. They can cut my hair. They can give me a new uniform. They can teach me a new language. They can give me a new job and otherwise control my life. I mean, his, imagine his, his contract, his orders to Okinawa had no rotation date. He had no EAS. He had, there was no end in sight. He was here for life. He was here for life. They controlled him, but he said, you're just not going to have my heart. You have taken every other piece of me, and for you guys, it's not been taken. You, you did actually sign somewhere and raise a right hand, but your life is now controlled um, by another, right? They have just about every piece of you, but they don't have to have your heart. 
Daniel said, my affection for God, my true king, is greater, and my allegiance to him trumps my allegiance to you. So this decision so early on in captivity could have cost Daniel his life. This decision never comes without consequence. And for Daniel, it could have cost him his life. They could have killed him on the spot for this defiance. And it's kind of surprising that they did not. Here's what we see here. Daniel could not control the outcome or the results. The one thing he could control was this resolution. That's the same for you. You cannot control the outcome or the results. The one piece you can control is this resolution. And Daniel resolved that he would not be forced into a position where he dishonored his true king and thus defiled himself. No fit rep, no eval, no pros and cons, no promotion, no retirement, no tenure, no selection or recognition or popularity would sway him from submitting to God over his bosses. That's some tension. That's some tension for Daniel. And there's another layer of tension. Daniel, I've got to believe, would be asking himself, if I do this, if I make this choice, will God show himself faithful? Will he use, I, tr- I believe that he's my sovereign king, but will he use that sovereignty for my ultimate good if I make this resolution? I think there's some tension there because Daniel knew that God had already sent him into captivity. Daniel wasn't there by accident. We, we read this from 2 Kings. Um, God had sent him here. And in fact, in, chapter, in verse 2 of chapter 1, where we read that the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. Right at the outset, Daniel uses a name for God. We can't see it in the English. Normally, he would refer to him as Jehovah. In this verse, he refers to him as Adonai, which is a name specifically used to point to the reality that God is sovereign over all of life. So Daniel's setting this entire narrative up by saying, God put me in this undesirable situation. He's responsible for me being here. And now what is he going to, he used his sovereignty to bring us here out of judgment. Now how will he use his sovereignty once we, are, once we are here? What will he do? Well, in verse nine, we read that God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief that was appointed over him. And in verse 17 to 20, the day of inspection, uh, when that day came to stand before the king, we read, as for these four youths, Daniel and his three friends, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom. And Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. At the end of the time when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. And the king spoke with them. And among all of them, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore, they stood before the king and in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them 10 times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all his kingdom. Who did this? God did this. Not Daniel, not his three friends. They don't get the credit for this favor um, or for uh, the advantage over their peers. God proved himself to be faithful. So Daniel's first story is a message of hope meant to boost the confidence of God's people. God is faithful. You resolve to honor him. That is your part. You resolve in your heart to honor him. And he is sovereign over the results. And in those results, whether they appear to go favorably for you or not, in the end, God will prove himself to be faithful. He is our confidence in changing seasons and uncertain futures. That's how Daniel starts the sequence of stories 
And that's, that is the prevailing message that he wants us to receive, the faithfulness of our sovereign king, which leads us into chapter two. We'll, tra- we'll, we'll, we'll title chapter two, Dream or Die, Dream or Die. So King Nebuchadnezzar has a deeply troubling dream, uh, so troubling that it, it makes him sleepless. Uh, he doesn't know the meaning of the dream, and he's got to find out. One of my favorite questions to ask at breakfast time every morning is, after how was your night's sleep, did you have any crazy dreams? And then having fun with the, just fun, I'm not, this is just fun, having fun with the potential interpretations of the crazy dreams that the kids seated around my table had. Um, it's kind of like what's going on here, but this is a nightmare for Nebuchadnezzar. There's no, there's no joy here. There's no, this was not a good dream. He can't even sleep. And so the king tells his people, check this out, chapter 2, verse 5, if you do not make known to me the dream and its interpretation, you shall be torn limb from limb and your houses shall be laid in ruins. But if you show the dream and its interpretations, you shall receive from me gifts and rewards and great honor. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar's first leadership book was entitled Limb from Limb, How to Make Friends and Influence People. And so these guys respond to the king, king, man, we can't do this. You don't, you don't tell a king you can't do something. Like, you're solutions-oriented in the king's presence. You don't say, we can't do this thing. But that, they just had to say it because they knew they couldn't. Here's what they say in verse 10. There is not a man on earth who can meet the king's demand. For no great and powerful king has asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or Chaldean. The thing that the king asks is difficult, and no one can show it to the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with the flesh. In verse 12, because of this, the king was angry, very furious, and commanded that all the wise men of Babylon be destroyed. So the decree went out, and the wise men were about to be killed, and they sought Daniel and his companions to kill them. So here we are, early in captivity. Daniel, he has already resolved to follow God. He is now about to die again. And so what do you do? What do you do when your confidence in God collides with consequences at work for your resolve to follow Jesus first um, rather than those around you? What will Daniel do? In verse 17 and 18, we read, Then Daniel went to his house, and he made the matter known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, his companions. And he told them, this is what Daniel did, he told them to seek mercy from God, from the God of heaven concerning this mystery, so that Daniel and his companions might not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. So what do you do? What do you do when the consequences of decision to be resolved to follow Jesus above everything else collide with the natural consequences uh, that that decision will bring about? We seek mercy from God. Not alone, notice Daniel didn't just get down and pray by himself. What did he do? He went back to his missional community or his fight club, his community, his church family, like just to lay our context down on his. He went to his community of faith, to his brothers. And he said, we need to seek mercy from God together. That's what we do. That, that is how confidence in a sovereign king is expressed. In the mystery, we seek God's mercy Listen, if we don't seek God's mercy, all those resolutions you made at the outset of your career, like Daniel, mean absolutely nothing. They are powerless apart from God's mercy. You will not maintain your resolve. You will not be strong enough. You will not be unwavering without God's mercy. 
Now, none of you are facing this particular mystery. I like that that word is used here in this chapter to describe the dream, because it's not just that they had to interpret the dream. Nebuchadnezzar would not tell them the dream that he had. He wanted to kind of vet his people. So he's like, first, I want you to tell me my dream and then interpret it, right? He, that was tough right there. That's why they were saying, man, King, nobody can do this for you. That was Daniel's mystery. And, and, and um, though we are not facing that kind of particular mystery, many of you are in seasons of trial that are absolutely sh- shrouded with mystery. I spent time with some of you this week. You're suffering. You're in a difficult season. And for you, it is shrouded with mystery. And what should we do together in those seasons? The same thing Daniel did with his friends. We seek the God of heaven to receive mercy from him. So Daniel and his friends seek mercy. God reveals the dream and the interpretation to Daniel. And Daniel answered the king and said in verse 20, blessed be, or he answered and he said, blessed be the name of God forever and ever to whom belong wisdom and might. Notice this is what our God does. The sovereign king changes times and seasons. He's sovereign over them. He removes kings and sets up kings. Why are we not threatened by the potential that a, a, um, a beneficial tax status for churches in the U.S. could be threatened? We're not threatened by that because Jesus is sovereign over all of those things. If he wants a tax-exempt status to be taken away from churches in the States, no big deal. It's going to be taken away. We're probably the first culture in human history that would gather together as churches and kind of have that perk to begin with anyway. The church is not threatened at all by anything like that. At all. In fact, we will be made stronger in the hardship. Jesus is sovereign over all circumstances. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. Nothing you have, wisdom or knowledge wise, is original with you. It's all a gift from our king. He reveals deep and hidden things. I love this next line. He knows what is in the darkness. Some of you just need to write that down or circle. He knows what is in the darkness, and the light dwells with him. To you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise, for you have given me wisdom and might, and have now made known to me what we asked of you, for you have made known to us the king's matter. Guys, our sovereign king changes times and seasons. He removes kings. He knows what is in the darkness. Let that be your singular source of confidence. You seek his mercy. You don't need to seek the light. You don't need to seek clarity. You don't need to seek resolution. We need to seek the sovereign king who gives all of these things, who alone knows what is in the darkness. He is our source of confidence. So Daniel interprets the king's dream. It's a crazy dream. It's a statue representing four successive kingdoms, arrogant kingdoms that are not submissive to God. There's no mercy in these kingdoms, no justice. And then in the end of the dream, a huge rock that is not cut by human hands, it just kind of comes out of this rock face, hurdles itself towards the statue and obliterates it. One day, God's... um, forever kingdom will confront and replace all these unjust, uh, mercy-deficient kingdoms. That's what the interpretation is in verse 44. Daniel says, and in those days, or in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever." This is very much a future message, but again, Daniel's message is hopeful. 
but it's a, a message of hope that requires patience from, uh, from us. What Daniel is saying is we trust the king while we wait for the inbreaking of his kingdom. He's coming and he will bring resolution, but in the tension in between, uh, we trust him and we wait for him with patience. Verse 46, then King Nebuchadnezzar fell upon his face and paid homage to Daniel and commanded that an offering and incense be offered up to notice, not God, but to Daniel, right? To Daniel. The king answered and said to Daniel, truly, your God is God of gods and Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries, for you have been able to reveal this mystery. So again, here's the tension for Daniel. Will the sovereign king be faithful in moments like this? And again, in another story, yes, the sovereign king shows himself to be faithful, which is a source of confidence for Daniel moving forward. But we need to, we need to make this observation. This does not mean that life will be easy for Daniel or his friends. Daniel's life will be hard. Empty religion promises you a happy-go-lucky, easy life without tension or difficulty or trial. But each story in Daniel points to this reality that God's faithfulness will be seen most clearly in the difficulty and your confidence in this sovereign king will grow most, not in the easy days, but in the soil of hardships. The conflict for Nebuchadnezzar is this. He acknowledges God as a true king, but notice how he did it. He's like, Daniel, you're God. Like, I still have all of mine. I've got all of mine. Your God is pretty good, but he's not mine. That's the tension for Nebuchadnezzar. Um, this is still not personal for him. He's simply saying, Daniel, you're God. He did a good thing for me, um, but I, I still have nothing to do with him. I don't need him. I am my own sovereign. And see, in chapter three, we're gonna see that Nebuchadnezzar still worships himself. And in fact, he wants other people to worship him too. Um, kind of like our hearts, we tend to worship ourselves and we tend to want other people to think well of us, to worship us too. And so chapter three gives us bow or burn. Chapter three is bow or burn. Nebuchadnezzar builds a big statue representing himself, representing his glory, representing his kingdom. Let's read beginning in verse eight. Therefore, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the Jews. They declared to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, there were Scots there apparently, and every kind of music. So, isn't that crazy? There were bagpipes. That, did you even know that? Like the Babylonian Empire was rocking. They were, they were playing Amazing Grace to bagpipes already. Insane. They shall fall down and worship the golden image, and whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. King, there are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in furious rage, commanded um, that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. So they brought these men before the king, and Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now, if you are ready, when you hear the sound of the horn and all the instruments, fall down and worship the image that I have made. Well and good, I'll let this pass. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And who then is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Now, no, look at this response. It's amazing. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, 
we have no need to answer you in this matter. Basically, what they're saying is we don't need the second chance. Like, don't even bother playing the bagpipes again. We're not bowing down. If this be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But notice the next three very, very, very important words for us. But if not, but if not, be it known to you, O king, that still we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image. We will not be defiled by this that you have set up. Man, that boldness right there, that doesn't just happen to us. That boldness is the fruit of daily cultivated confidence in our sovereign king. It's the result of spending time with him and getting to know him. It's the result of being through difficult seasons in the past. That's cultivated. But notice what else they say. They say, but if not. In other words, they're saying, look, we believe our God is able. We believe he's the sovereign king. But if he chooses not to deliver us from the fiery furnace, if he chooses to let us burn, even in the burning, we do not doubt his kind sovereignty. We don't disbelieve his goodness. We don't question his ability or his judgment. We trust him explicitly, explicitly with our lives in favorable times and in the furnace, let come what may. This is our resolve. And so as you would expect, an angry king turns up the heat. He has them thrown in. It got so hot, the Bible says that the people who threw them in passed out and died right there on the edge of the furnace. Uh, but then they don't burn, and everybody sees a fourth character walking around with them. And in verse 24, we read, Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, Hey, didn't we cast three men bound into the fire? And they answered and said to the king, Yeah, you're right, king, we did. And he answered and said, But I see four men unbound walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Now, we don't know who this fourth person was for sure. Some would say he was an angel. An angel just means messenger, so he's some kind of special messenger from God. Some believe it was the pre-incarnate Christ himself that Jesus was there in the moment. I happen to take that position. I believe um, Jesus was with them in the fire. Either way, messenger or Christ himself, God is showing us that even in the fire, his kids are never alone. That's what Jesus said, right? I will never leave you nor forsake you. Your pain is my pain. Your sorrow is my sorrow. Your affliction, your persecution is my affliction, my persecution. I am with you in the fire. I am sovereign over circumstances. What other people intend to use for your harm, for your evil, I'm sovereign over even that, and I turn these, um, I turn these difficult circumstances to be for your good. That's our sovereign king. And in verse 28, we read, um, Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, man, blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel, his messenger, and delivered his servants who trusted in him and set aside the king's command. Look at this line, guys. And yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any God except their own God. God, help us. Monday to Friday, to have that same posture. That should be our prayer right there. Yielding up our bodies rather than serving and worshiping any God except their own. 
Therefore, I make a decree, any people, nation, or language that speaks anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn, here he goes again, limb from limb, and their houses laid in ruins, for there is, there's a way to start a church right there, or a movement for God, like worship him or I rip your arms out. For there is no other God who is able to rescue in this way. Then the king promotes the three guys in the province of Babylon. So what's the tension again? Will God be faithful to his kids? Yes, again, even in the furnace. He is our confidence in changing seasons and uncertain futures. And for Nebuchadnezzar, again, he comes face to face with a sovereign king. But notice how we talked about God. It's still not his. He's still theirs. He's still your God. This is, um, he has not changed yet, but everything for him is about to change in chapter 4 which we will call beastly rebellion, but mercy. And in verse one, we read, King Nebuchadnezzar, to all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. It has seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that the most high God has done for me. Notice this change now. This is is Nebuchadnezzar, what he has done for me. How great are his signs, how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and his dominion endures from generation to generation. So you're like, wait, who's speaking, Daniel or Nebuchadnezzar? It can't be Nebuchadnezzar, but it is. And here's what we see in Daniel. The sovereign king pursues this ruthless rebel king, not in judgment. He's not out to rip Nebuchadnezzar's arm limb, or body limb from limb. He's out to show Nebuchadnezzar mercy for his good. And chapter four tells us the story of how Nebuchadnezzar came to see his need for God's mercy. It takes him another disturbing dream. And again, Daniel is the only one able to interpret. It's so disturbing that even Daniel does not want to explain to the king, but he does. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar dreamt of a big, strong, life-giving tree, a beautiful tree. All the animals gathered there, all the birds gathered there. It was the most beautiful tree in the world, but a scary spiritual being descends and chops the tree down and ironically rips limb from limb, just like he always threatened he would do, destroys the tree. This is what happens in his dream. And then the stump is bound to the ground with a band of bronze and iron. And then the tree in the dream seems to be personified, almost like to come to life as a person. And then the person turns into a wild beast, an animal. So Daniel interprets this and he says, King, uh, your dream is a decree of the Most High, which has come upon my Lord the King, that you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. You shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and you shall be wet with the dew of heaven, and seven periods of time shall pass over you. Listen, till you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. That's just Daniel saying, you think you're the sovereign king, but you're not. And God is going to do whatever he needs to do to humble you and show you that he alone is sovereign and you're a rebel and you need his mercy. And as it was commanded to leave the stump of the roots of the tree, your kingdom shall be confirmed for you from the time that you know that heaven rules. Therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed. Now watch this in verse 28. All this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar at the end of 12 months. He's walking on the roof of his royal palace and the king answers and said, is, this, is not this great Babylon which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence for the glory of my majesty? That's what rebellion sounds like, guys, in our hearts. Um, my power, my might, my glory, my fame. I did this. I'm a self-made man. 
That's what rebellion sounds like, and it brings you into conflict with the sovereign king. And the Bible says, while these words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven. And look at verse 33. Immediately the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among men, and he ate grass like an ox. And his body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair grew as long as eagle's feathers, and his nails were bird, bird's claws. This isn't his dream anymore. This is his reality. Um, Look, all of our rebellion has a beastly undertone to it. It dehumanizes us. It mars the image of God in us. It, it's got a beastly undercurrent to it. At the end of days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High, and I praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And look at this. None can stay his hand. None can, nobody can hold his hand back. That will either become an increasing source of confidence for you in life if you have submitted yourself to the sovereign king, or that line will be a haunting line for you, and you will grow to hate it in rebellion to the king. Verse 37. Now, Everything's changed. Everything has changed. I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven for all his works are right and his ways are just and those who walk in pride, he's able to humble. Oh boy, speaking from personal experience. This is the day, this is the moment that rebel, rebel king Nebuchadnezzar submitted himself to the only sovereign king and in so doing, he found mercy. He repents, he submits, and he finds life. That's the gospel. That is the good news for the most rebellious of rebels. That's good news for you. His life was horrifically lived in rebellion to the good king. But in a moment, he repents. And in repentance, he finds mercy in life. Now, guys, we don't have crowns on our heads. None of us have kingdoms. But in rebellion to our sovereign king, we all wear a self-appointed crown on our hearts. And our rebellion, like Nebuchadnezzar's, takes us to beastly places. Many of us have been there. Some of you are still there. And the offer of the gospel is just as beautiful for you today as it was for Nebuchadnezzar. If you will repent and submit to the sovereign king, no matter what you have done, no matter what you are doing, you will receive mercy and you will know life. Now, remember, we said there are two outcomes. That's one of them, repent find mercy, restoration. Chapter five gives us the other outcome. It's sad, and it tells the story of Nebuchadnezzar's son, an unrepentant, proud rebel king. We'll call chapter five, writings on the wall, writings on the wall. Look at verse one. King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in front of the thousand. Belshazzar, when he had tasted the wine, commanded that the vessels of gold and of silver that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem be brought that the king and his lords and his wives and his concubines might drink from them. Immediately, this is a crazy party right here. Immediately, the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace opposite the lampstand. And the king saw the hand as it wrote. Then the king's color changed, yeah? And his thoughts alarmed him. His limbs gave way and his knees knocked together. He can't read what's on the wall, so it's Daniel time again. Daniel arrives. Daniel reads the writing, and he interprets what's going on for the king. Verse 18, O king, the most high God gave Nebuchadnezzar, your father, kingship and greatness and glory and majesty. 
And because of the greatness that he gave him, all peoples, nations, and languages trembled and feared before him. Whom he would, he killed. And whom he would, he kept alive. Whom he would, he raised up. And whom he would, he humbled. But when your daddy's heart was lifted up and his spirit was hardened so that he dealt proudly, he was brought down from his kingly throne and his glory was taken from him. He was driven from among the children of mankind and his mind was made like that of a beast and his dwelling was with the wild donkeys. He was fed grass like an ox and his body was wet with the dew of heaven until he knew that the most high God rules the kingdom of mankind and sets over it whom he will. And you, his son, Belshazzar, you, you have not humbled your heart. These next words are chilling. Though you knew all of this. Guys, some of you are in this room and you know all of this. You saw it play out in your parents' life. You saw it play out in your family's life. You know the gospel. You know that Jesus is the sovereign king. But you have not yet humbled your heart, though you know all of this. You have lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven. And the vessels of his house have been brought in before you. And you and your lords, your wives, your concubines have drunk wine from them. And you have praised the gods of silver and gold, the bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which you do not see or hear or know. But the God in whose hand is your breath and whose are all your ways you have not honored. Then from his presence, the hand was sent and this writing was inscribed. And this is the writing that was inscribed, Mene, Mene, Tekel, and Parson. And this is in the interpretation of the Mahdi. Many, check this out, guys, this is crazy. God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tekel, you've been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Perez, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. Verse 30, that very night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was killed. And Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. Guys, the words written on Belshazzar's wall could be written on our walls too. We rebelled just like he did, just like his daddy did. That same word many could be on my wall. God has numbered my days. Guys, God has numbered your days. Tekel, I have been weighed in the balance and found wanting. The gospel says we have all been weighed in the balance and found wanting. We are all rebel kings, lowercase kings, that have opposed ourselves to the sovereign king. Belshazzar needed rescue just like his dad did. And his father found that rescue through repentance. Have you? Have you? If not, you have to know that Daniel chapter 5 tells your story apart from Jesus. This is the outcome of a proud heart. This is the outcome of a life lived in defiance to our creator and sovereign king. And we conclude with chapter six, Den of Lions. This is the story with which you're most familiar. Maybe people think it's the most important in Daniel. It's really not. So we're gonna spend about two minutes with it and be done. But what you'll notice is the stories conclude the same way they began. Daniel faces opposition. The tension is, will God be faithful? And the resolution is God, once again, the sovereign king, shows himself to be faithful to his kids. If you're not familiar with the story, Daniel has exceptionally jealous co-workers by this time. They con the king into a law, um, outlawing prayer to anybody but the king. So they're appealing to his pride. The king passes this law. Daniel does what he does every other day. He goes home, opens his windows, faces a certain direction, and prays to the sovereign king. The king has to throw him to the lion's. 
And Daniel spends the night in a cave with lions who have not been fed for weeks. So the stories begin as they end, opposition and persecution. Guys, what does that tell us? Submission to Jesus, the sovereign king, is costly. It will cost you. There will be real profound consequences. But in those consequences, our sovereign king will always prove himself to be faithful. Daniel stuns the king by surviving the night with the lions. The king gets him out in the morning. And he says this in verse 25, Then King Darius wrote to all the peoples, the nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, Peace be multiplied to you. I make a decree that in all my royal dominion, people are to tremble and fear before the God of Daniel, for he alone is the living God. He alone endures forever. His kingdom alone will never be destroyed, and his dominion shall be to the end. Now notice these words that he says. He delivers and rescues. He works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. He who has saved Daniel from the power of the lions. Guys, the sixth story in Daniel carries the same message. Jesus is the sovereign king who delivers and rescues his people. He is our confidence in changing season and uncertain futures. Guys, he alone knows what is in your darkness. He is with you. Run to seek his mercy, and there you will find the mercy that you need. Daniel was not heroic, okay? Daniel was not perfect, and none of us are. Daniel needed Jesus, all the kings needed Jesus, I need Jesus, you need Jesus, and some of you are sitting here, man, your career started out the same way, maybe you made that resolution initially, and you know that you have compromised over and over and over again, and you wonder if the sovereign king is even going to pursue you anymore, or even allow you to be in his family. Guys, the gospel is just as true and beautiful for you today. You may have compromised a thousand times. You may have compromised this morning and again last night in the darkness of your own room. And you know who's waiting for you? This sovereign king. And who can stay his hand? Nobody. Nobody. Repent to him. You will receive mercy. You will know life and you will receive restoration. And he is a good king who will always prove himself to be faithful to you. And his kingdom and your presence in his kingdom will have no end. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Daniel. We thank you that he's not the hero of his own book. We thank you that he points to you over and over and over again. Jesus, you are our sovereign king. That is not a threat to us. That is a deep and profound joy. Jesus, thank you that you know what is in my darkness. And thank you that you are there with me. I pray that that would be a profound source of confidence for everybody in the room this morning. We all have darkness. You know what's there, and you are there with us, even in the furnace, even in the den of lions. You will prove yourself faithful. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.